welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 47, recorded on March 31st, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you, especially on a week when we have a stacked news docket, and we kick things off with a tablet that's running Chrome OS. Yeah, this is an Acer tablet, and it's definitely got nothing to do with the Apple tablet that's aimed at education that came out this week at all. No, no, absolutely no coincidence in timing here. Yeah. So this is a 9.7-inch tablet that runs Google Chrome, but it also supports Android apps, which they've been working on for quite a while, and last I heard, weren't very good, really. So I hope they've improved that. How much does that matter? Because this is really aimed at the educational market, isn't it? It's priced for the educational market. It's positioned to the educational market. And in in that sector, from my own experience with my kids, it's really there about the Google Apps and the Chrome web browser, and you just need the cheapest device possible to run those things. But is this the cheapest possible device at $329, the same price as the iPad? That is where it doesn't quite make sense to me. Uh, What you get spec-wise, it's a good value. You get 4 gigs of RAM, 32 gigabytes of built-in storage, plus it has eMMC storage. There's also USB 3.1 Type-C, so you could essentially hook up a thumb drive, micro SD card reader, and a headphone jack, all in this device. That same package, especially if you consider the 5 megapixel camera, uh, the Wi-Fi AC chipset, that's... $499 from Samsung in a traditional Chromebook configuration. So their $329 price tag, I don't think it's just cutting off the keyboard that got them to that price. They're intentionally getting it down to a range that is at least competitive for the educational market. If it's a good competitor, I don't know about that. I'm not so sure. But the pricing, they seem to be taking a bit of a loss here, at least if you go by Samsung pricing. Hmm. And is Chrome OS even really ready for a touchscreen interface? I know that a lot of the Chromebooks, the modern ones, have come with a touchscreen, but it's still an operating system that is very much designed around a keyboard and touchpad or mouse, isn't it? Yeah, I don't have, um, pardon the pun, hands-on experience with this on Chrome OS yet, but I do know from following the news for the last few years, they've been slowly adding more and more touch capabilities. And to your earlier point, If you're using this thing for Android applications, the uh, touch support is even more relevant. Yeah, we've kind of seen this merging of Chrome OS and Android for quite a while now, haven't we? So I wonder which way it's going to shake out. Is it going to be that they'll end up going completely Chrome OS or completely Android, I wonder? Yeah, it just seems like it'd be easier to focus on one thing, not just from Google's um, personnel and investment standpoint, but it'd be nice to have a clear concise story for school districts. Should you be investing in managing Android devices or investing in managing Chrome OS devices? Because think about this from the IT admin standpoint. You have tens of thousands of end users and you've got five people in your department. (laughs) That's the reality. So how do you manage these devices? How do you do this at scale? How do you charge these things? How do you move them between classrooms? Tablets, Chromebooks, and iPads all have different answers with different levels of complication, with different levels of completeness to that whole story. And I'm not sure if Google is really serving anybody by splitting the narrative here. But that's what Google does. They've got how many chat apps? It's They always hedge their bets, don't they? Maybe. And maybe in the long term that does work out. 
I would bet that this is based on the fact that they've had huge success with Chrome OS on traditional Chromebooks in classrooms, and there is somewhat of a demand for some type of tablet touchscreen type device that's extremely portable. And Google's hoping to capitalize on the existing success and leverage it on these tablets. It's a little bit ham-fisted, though. And maybe that's where Apple has a competitive advantage, especially when you start to get in the same price territory. But remember, if you have one solution to manage Chromebooks, then you probably can use that same exact solution to manage these tablets. And for these understaffed IT departments, that can be extremely valuable. Well, one solution that they definitely won't be using is Firefox OS, which we knew was dead, but now it is officially 100% dead. The App Store has been closed down, and that is it for Firefox OS. Rest in peace. Yeah, it's not just dead for those of us who didn't have a device yet, but this kind of kills it off for all of you who are still holding on. But, you know, not to pile on to Firefox here, Firefox OS, they had a valiant attempt. Microsoft hasn't released a Windows phone in years. BlackBerry doesn't release BlackBerry OS devices anymore. They now are focusing on Android devices. And there's few other smartphone operating systems in existence. We cover Sailfish X sometimes here on the show. Um... And we just recently talked about WebOS, but that's not anywhere on phones. Ubuntu Touch is now living on as an open source project that's also fighting the good fight. I don't think we can necessarily blame Firefox OS for not succeeding in this market. It's just simply iOS and Android and their respective ecosystems have it all locked up. Yeah, but wasn't it supposed to be on TVs and stuff as well? And we've not seen enough of that to justify keeping this app store running, it seems. True, that's true. I think maybe WebOS and other home-brewed operating systems and just the general availability of the Linux kernel probably solved that problem. There wasn't anybody really asking for Firefox OS on a TV. It was never really built properly in the first place, though, was it? The fact that you couldn't update the browser without updating the whole OS and stuff, it just seemed to have been put together just badly. And I'm not surprised at all that it's ended up going this way, the way of all the other attempts, pretty much. You know, I could still be convinced that uh, a browser that runs all of your apps and your general desktop shell on a phone is a good idea. I mean, as long as it's done right, somebody could convince me of that. So I wouldn't say that necessarily sank it or not. But to me, it feels like there's a larger lesson for open source projects to take on here. And that's one that will surprise no one in our audience iOS and Android have this whole market sewn up because they have these incredible ecosystems. And there is another way to approach this problem, like our friends over at Plasma Mobile seem to be doing in a very humble and steady approach that may eventually work because there's a lot of us enthusiasts out here that want an OS we can load on our own hardware. Well, yeah, same with Ubuntu Touch, you reports, guys. That is the way to do it, is to be humble and slowly but surely build something that works really well and not try and have these huge launches and everything like we've seen from Mozilla with Firefox OS. So my money's still on Ubuntu Touch, I think. They're getting rid of scopes now and focusing on getting Android apps running in Ambox. So I think that it's going to be a big year for them. I said that in our predictions show and I'm sticking by it. I'm not quite sure what to make of this next story. It's either Google oppressing an open source project during a critical moment while they're trying to establish their identity, or it's Google playing softball and appeasing a heavy-handed copyright lobby. 
Yeah, this is Google removing Kodi from autocomplete in the search. So if you search for K-O-D, then it's not going to suggest Kodi for you or um, add-ons for K-O, it's not going to suggest Kodi. And I think it's probably the latter. I think that it is Google bowing to pressure from the the copyright lobbyists and you know the whole entertainment industry that are obsessed with Kodi like they were obsessed with torrents and stuff years ago. Now they've realized that most people who want to watch copyrighted material for free will do it via streaming, and Kodi is one of the biggest ways to do that. So I suppose if this is all it takes to appease them, as far as Google's concerned, then it's not a huge issue. But it does speak to this bigger point, doesn't it, that Kodi is basically a toxic brand at this point depending on how you look at it, it's either this amazing way to get loads of free, cool entertainment, or if you are in the entertainment industry, it is a completely toxic word. But Kodi in of itself, as we always talk about this, is just free open source software that just plays media. You have to supply the streams or the media in order to use it. And in of itself, it's completely harmless. So they've got this real problem the XPMC Foundation, of what to do about this brand. I mean, do they have to rebrand again? They rebranded from XBMC to Cody. Maybe that's the only solution here. You know, that's a good idea, I think, because the open source community will follow. We'll all understand. This is a game we've kind of gotten used to. And this is a weird position that Google is in. They want to play ball with the companies that they want to sell movies for on Play and YouTube. So, of course, they have to be accommodating. And if Google doesn't take action, then Google gets branded as being complicit in piracy. So their limp-wristed response is, well, we'll just sort of nuke its autocomplete. You can still type in Cody and hit search and still get all the results. And if you start typing in Cody, you start to get suggestions for things like Kodak or Kodiak Bears. It's it's really awkward. And I... I I wish Google would take a firmer stance here and say, no, this is an open source platform that can be used for good or bad. Because Cody really is now in a super hard spot. They have been aggressively, for the last couple of years, trying to remove the Cody name from piracy. They've even reached out to the MPAA. They've taken a very hard stance in public forums, denouncing piracy. They have really gone as far as a project possibly can, even borderline crossing the line. In fact, at scale, that was a topic of conversation, is that perhaps the Cody project is too mean because they're yelling at people on Twitter about piracy. Well, is it not hypocritical of them to complain about piracy? Because let's face it, is anybody using Cody to watch or listen to anything other than copyrighted material that they don't have the proper rights to watch? I mean, that's the whole point of it. Yes, in of itself, it's not doing anything wrong and it's it's totally legal and all the rest of it. But I, I can't think of anyone who uses it to watch anything other than pirated material. You know what, as far as I know, what they care about are the add-ons that enable streaming of content. If you have a big old NAS full of television and movie shows, they don't like that, but that's not why they're going after Cody. Because they realize you could use VLC to play it on a TV with a laptop hooked up to a TV screen. It's the one-touch 
hit a button, and now you are torrent streaming the latest movies. And what really gets them fired up, and I remember this from last when we were covering this story on Linux Action News, or I mean, sorry, Linux Action Show, what way back in the day now feels like a decade ago. <laughs> they care about the add-ons that people are selling that come pre-bundled into a box. So you go buy like a NUC or you go buy a Media Center PC, you hook it up to your TV's HDMI port, and Bob's your uncle, you've got Cody with this one-click, you're streaming torrent movies. That's what they're upset about. They think that's going to be the big, big consumer revolution, that consumers are going to rush out and it's going to be the new VCR, and Cody is going to be the enabler of a whole new generation of VCRs. That's what they think's happening. If you're streaming it over Samba or NFS or DNLA on your LAN, I don't think they care. The thing is, though, that Cody Box is like a name brand at this point. It's a household name. I know plenty of normal people who don't know anything about technology, don't even have a laptop at this point. They just have a phone and a Kodi box that they bought off eBay or something. Um, they didn't configure any of the the add-ons. They, they come mm. preloaded or fully loaded or whatever. <laughs> and that is the reality of the situation. There are a lot of people, there are probably millions of people out there who have bought these boxes and are streaming all this content for free. I would wager there are more users of Plex and there are more customers using Roku's with Plex installed streaming downloaded television shows than all of the Kodi Box users in the world, though. So if it if it doesn't stop with Kodi, then where does it end? Does does MB become next? And then after MB, do they move on to Plex? And then after Plex, do they move on to Roku? Where does this end? There has to be some sort of rational distinction between the software that's capable of playing files and has the capability of add-ons, just like a web browser, versus something that is pre-built and pre-engineered to steal content. That's a big difference. And going back to the Google point here, Google is complicit now in branding Kodi as a piracy tool because now they are one more organization that is shunning them. They are playing ball with organizations who misunderstand and misrepresent what the Cody project is about. And that's why it's a shame. Not because it won't auto-complete anymore, but simply because Google didn't take a stance and defend open source, but yet they bang that open source drum on a daily basis. Less.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited. If you just use less, you pay less. Less. .ting.com. Take $25 off a device, or if you bring your own, they will give you $25 in service credit. Now, your average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month because it's pay for what you use wireless. $6 a month for the line, and then you just pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. However much you use, that's what you pay. It's really, really simple. That is the entire Ting story. $6, and then there's an Uncle Sam cut there. What you use, no contract, no service agreement, that's it. And then it's just like everything on top of it just is better. Great customer service, you get to talk to real human beings. The best dashboard in mobile to manage everything, from the devices you have active to their individual services, all of it. They even have a great app for Android and iOS. And then, my personal favorite feature, although it's something you never have to worry about with Ting if you don't want, but it's a thing I love, they have a GSM 
and a CDMA network. In the States, that's great. In the Pacific Northwest, there is clear areas where CDMA simply performs better because of the install, the hills, the trees, all of that. And when I am traveling, there's areas where GSM just rocks it, and I can switch between them. My Nexus 6P supports both. I love that. You can get a device from Ting directly or bring your own. And because they have those two networks, there's a ton they support. Just check out their BYOT page lass.ting.com. While you're there, check out their blog. They have a post right now about Haya, which helps block unwanted calls on both iOS and Android. I installed it. I love it. That Ting blog is great. Just start by going to lass.ting.com. That's lass.ting.com. Okay, so we managed to avoid this last week, but the time has come to talk about Facebook and that whole controversy that went on with Cambridge Analytica. Now, Mozilla have come out with an add-on for Firefox, which somewhat helps protect your privacy by isolating Facebook in a container. I think this is pretty neat. In fact, I almost would want to recommend anybody using Facebook check this out. Uh, Even if you're typically a Chrome user, I think this is worth checking out. I think this is a simplification of an extension that I've used before, that allows you to sort of pop different tabs into their own individual containers. Now, let's back up. This one's focused on Facebook, and it works by isolating your Facebook identity into a separate container that makes it hard for Facebook to track the visits to other sites and other things you do on the Internet. Once you install this extension, it deletes your Facebook cookies and it logs you out of Facebook. tried this myself. That's exactly what happens. The next time you go to Facebook and you log in, it's all inside this little container. If you click uh, Facebook share buttons on other browser tabs, it will load them within the Facebook container. It's pretty nice. There are some, some caveats, some downsides. It's important for you to realize it doesn't prevent Facebook from mishandling the data themselves, like that they already have on you. That's, you're not preventing them from selling your information. You're just limiting the new information that they can track. Also, if you use Facebook to log into other services on the web, like Facebook login functionality, that's probably not going to work. The one tab can't talk to the other tab. That's the whole point of the container system. So that's a bit of a bummer if you use Facebook login for some stuff. Well, jokes on Facebook, I don't use my real name or post any real data on any of my Facebook accounts, my many different Facebook accounts, which I probably shouldn't admit to having, should I? But I'm not going to use this because I I just don't need to really. I I don't have any information on there that they could use about me. None of that information is valuable. So it's more about them tracking you as you go across the web, though, because every website that has a Facebook like they're now tracking when you visit that website. If it's got a like button anywhere on the page, then they know you went there. Yeah which is pretty scary, which is why I tend to be logged out and I tend to not really use Facebook on my laptop at all anyway. Yep. I, I kind of just lurk a little bit on my phone and I definitely haven't installed the app or the Messenger app. Um, yep. One um, thing that's interesting is that they've been collecting loads of data by using that Messenger app and they've basically forced you to use the app. I don't know if you've ever had Facebook messages on the mobile website. I completely refuse to use it. I have lots and lots and lots of messages waiting for me. I get them from family too, but that was just a line too far for me. 
Yeah, well, they, you get that notification and then you click it and then it opens the Play Store and wants you to install the, the Messenger. And I'm like, no thanks. But I've got a little <laughs> hack for you. View uh, desktop version of the site and then you can use Messenger. It's very clunky and stuff. But if you absolutely have to send a message in Facebook on your phone, that's how to do it. But yeah, I mean, I'm not a big Facebook user anyway. It's just something that I lurk. And mostly, really, the the only account that I ever really use is um, the one to post shows uh, for late night Linux, just because there's a small community there of people who want to use Facebook. But if you are forced to use Facebook, like most people are, to stay in touch with family and friends, then this container add-on for Firefox seems like a pretty decent way to go. I agree. And speaking of tracking services, if you have multiple Google accounts or multiple Twitter accounts or whatever, maybe just check out the multi-account container extension, which I'll link at linuxactionnews.com slash 47. Uh, that is this for Facebook, but for all the things, which I find to be the most useful because it color codes the tabs too. So I have one tab for my JB email, one tab for my personal email, and I can do the same thing with docs. That's really nice. And that is the multi-account containers. And it's one of those nice little things that keeps me on Firefox. I do tend to criticize Mozilla quite a lot, but to be fair to them, they've made pretty good strides with this containerization stuff in Firefox. And Firefox does continue to improve all the time. So I've stuck with it all this time. I'm still not a Chrome user. And there's even more reason to stick with it now. So uh, well done, Mozilla. The Oracle and Google case is not dead yet. My co-host on Coda Radio described this as the tech franchise that just keeps coming back into theaters. And I gotta, I gotta say, Google, I totally told you so. I hate to do it, but I told you so. Yeah, where do we start with a nearly 10-year-old case? I mean, you've been following this since the early days of Linux Action Show, haven't you? Yeah, really since it began, I've been following this story. And it started out really clearly in Google's favor. In fact, in 2010, Oracle sued Google and the open source community exploded. And Google won all their claims in 2012 and it emboldened everybody. And it wasn't until later when Oracle appealed the claim and sent it back to the Federal Circuit, that emails were released from Andy Rubin and others within Google that clearly showed they evaluated all available technologies and determined that Java would be best and that they needed to license it. From that moment, I knew Google had a far, far shot of winning this thing because Oracle has them dead to rights in emails internally saying, we need to license this sucker. And they have emails where they say, we've got to go with Java because we're behind the ball on this. And if we're going to catch up to Apple in the iPhone, we've got to use something that has tons of developers already. So we've got to use Java. Yeah, but they re-implemented most of it, didn't they? It was just some of the APIs that they reused, and that's what this case boils down to. Yeah, exactly. In 2016, actually, the second jury that looked at this whole thing found that Google's use of the structure and sequence and the organization of 37 Java APIs was, was fair use. And that's where we're at now. So Oracle appealed that, and this week, the Federal Circuit ruled that, yeah, Oracle's right. There's things in here that are clear copy and paste. And there's a couple of sections early on where it appears that Google even grabbed like the comments from the original Java source code and just copy and pasted it. They cleaned it up later on, but of course it was all published. So they did some sleuthing and they found that early source code where there was line for line copies. Yeah, it doesn't look good for Google. I knew that this was going to be overturned uh, a couple of years ago when 
the jury found that it was fair use because it's not fair use, is it? It's blatant copying of APIs, which were proved to be copyrightable. And it was just this idea of whether it was fair use or not. And it just didn't seem like it at the time. And I knew an appeal would happen and I knew it would get overturned. So I think this is going to end up costing Google a lot of money. And the thing is, it's not a popular thing to say that Google are going to lose and Oracle are going to win this because Oracle are not a popular company within the open source community. But you can't change the facts here that they are basically in the right. And they have those emails from folks running Android at the time, clearly seeing that, yeah, we need to we need to license this. And Andy Rubin himself said, yeah, I did see that email. So that's a tough thing to beat around. I do kind of think at a larger sort of, sort of bigger picture perspective here that Google may actually have a bit of a claim. Like this is such a common technology that you have claimed is a worldwide resource. Like you yourselves position it as that. You sort of, in your own marketing, justify why it is fair use for us to use these APIs. I, I can see that perspective. If it wasn't for the conniving right out in the clear in their emails, uh, I, Google may have a much better case here. Yeah, well, we'll see what comes of this. But to me, there has always been one very clear winner in this whole situation, and that is the lawyers. They are cleaning up on this. Well, and for something completely different, if not a bit unexpected, Microsoft just made it easier and open source for you to ship your own distro on top of the subsystem for Linux. Yeah, so before the actual code to make your Linux distro run on the subsystem was proprietary, but now they've published an example bit of code which really facilitates anyone who's got a distro to make it run on WSL. And then you can easily sideload it onto your own system. But to put it out there into the public, you have to get it into the Microsoft App Store, which does require them to review it and make sure that everything's working properly. Yeah. You have to ask for permission to get it in the bigger App Store. And I bet that's going to be pretty limited. But they do make facilities available for you to load it yourself. So if you are your own distro maintainer, uh, or you knew how to make a distro that you really loved work on this, you could still load it on your own instance of Windows. But it's interesting that they talk about needing permission to get into the App Store. Does that suggest that the likes of SUSE and Fedora and Kali Linux requested it themselves rather than Microsoft approaching them? It kind of implies that to me. It does imply it a bit. And maybe after Ubuntu was announced, maybe that is the case. But my initial read on all of those announcements was it was an invite because Microsoft led the announcement in those cases. Yeah, I suppose so. Maybe I'm just trying to cook up some conspiracy bacon there. I like it, though. You know me. I love some good bacon. Yeah. But do you think we're actually going to see more distros now then? Do you think anyone else is interested in being on the subsystem? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I bet. And I think you'll also see a lot of folks just do this to their own favorite distro. So say you wanted something that wasn't in there today, and they make this available for you to sideload it, as they put it. Um, why not? Why not do it? I, I would do it. If I was stuck on Windows and I had to manage a bunch of Linux boxes, I'd totally do it. Especially if I was like some Gentoo guy or something, and we had all these Gentoo systems. Who would ever load Gentoo in production? I don't know. That person would have to be a crazy younger version of myself. And I would totally <laughs> want Gentoo on my Windows system to manage it. Yeah. And I wonder if this opens the door a little bit closer to getting BSD running on it. I know it's a very big technical challenge to do it, but I'm sure someone out there must be trying to do it. 
Yeah, at least one person must want that. Yeah, maybe Alan wants to get it going. <laughs> well, if Alan Jude manages to pull that off, or any other interesting things develop in the open source world, and of course with Linux, we'll tell you about it right here on the Linux Action News. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And you can support the entire network at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.